You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. It is good to remember that while the library of Scripture is beautiful, it can at least at first reading seem somewhat strange, potentially scary, bizarre, or confusing. And because the internet is the gift that keeps on giving, mostly terrible content, but sometimes winners, um, we have memes. So, check this one out. Isaiah 34, 7. And the unicorn shall come down with them, and their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust made with fatness. Know your Bible. That's what it says. Did you know that the Bible has unicorns in it? Um, This is one of about six times that unicorns are mentioned in the Scripture. Interesting. Uh, What about this one? Psalm 137, 9. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Great God you have. An actual verse that is in an actual Bible. Or what about this one? Um, The Lord is angry. He will totally destroy them. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. Isaiah 34, 2 through 3. I imagine most of you don't have that one on your coffee mug. (laughs) There's nothing like a good mountain soaking in the morning of blood as you sip your coffee. Strange. Strange. What's the point? It's really important to know how to read the Bible. It is a simple statement, and yet if you've opened up to a random page in the Bible, you know that reading it is highly complex. And what I want to do today is explain some of the reasons why we have such biblical illiteracy in the church today. I think there are a lot of obvious reasons, and the least of which is we actually don't even read our Bibles But I do think there is some more around the issue that we want to explore. So this week, I want to talk about reading the Bible above the surface. And next week, I want to talk about reading the Bible below the surface. So we're going to take it in three parts. Context, community part one, and community part two. One of the biggest issues we read, uh, one of the biggest issues when we read the scripture is that we read it with us in mind. Each time we open the Bible, we become the focal point of the Bible. We are the main character in the story. We want to get something out of it as if it's some type of snack machine where I insert change and I receive something back, which makes us the lead and people in the story play some type of backup dancer. And a lot of times it comes through our preoccupation with reading a singular Bible verse. Dan Kimball has a great line in his book, How Not to Read the Bible. He says the number one rule you should have when reading the scripture is to never read a Bible verse. Never read a Bible verse. Because reading a Bible verse primarily is about soothing some immediate emotional need in us, completely void of anything else the Scripture has to say around that particular verse. So, Jen Wilkin calls this the Xanax approach, right? Read, if you're feeling anxious, if you just read Philippians 4, 6, you will feel better. Or if you feel kind of ugly, you read Psalm 139. Or if you feel generally tired, you read Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. 
And this is not to say that we shouldn't pray when we're anxious or we should feel bad when we need reminding that we were crafted in the womb of our mother or meditating on the fact that after four days of little sleep, sitting at the feet of Jesus can renew your spirit. But it is to say that those verses were not written so that you magically feel an emotional boost of energy. They were written in unique contexts with sentences and phrases around them in letters and poems and narratives. In other words, they were not written to you. They were written from specific places to specific people during a specific time period. But even more than that, the implications of reading a select few verses as your primary means of Bible reading and treating it as somewhat of a pill that will cure your ailments... (laughs) pretty much removes 98% of the entire Bible. Books of the Bible will remain untouched and pages unread because they will not quench some emotional thirst. You will not flip to Judges when you're feeling a little down. right? And you will not flip to Leviticus when you need a pick-me-up. And you will not flip to Second Chronicles when you are looking for inspiration. You and I have our select few verses we naturally gravitate to And those end up being the places in Scripture where we predominantly stay. That is not entirely bad. It is just woefully incomplete. To read the Scripture for what it's worth is to understand context. So rather than telling you about the importance of context, let me try and show you. Arguably, the most quoted and popular parable in the Scriptures is the one that Nikki just read. Movies and books have been made to copy this story because it reads somewhat compelling. But I imagine that while many of us know the story, we don't know the context of the story. For example, there are a list of norms and expectations that are prerequisites to the story that we miss out on if we read it at face value. The father is a well-off patriarch. He owns a big enough house to have hired servants occupies a banquet hall enough to feed a neighborhood, owns fatted calves and herds of goats, hires musicians and dancers for entertainment. He is a highly respected member in the community. And transferring part of his estate to his son is a serious matter that would only be dealt with as the father approaches death, which it doesn't appear that he's doing. Now the son gathers all he has... And converts it into currency, meaning he took his part of the estate and sold it. Now this is a huge deal because Jewish law in the first century did not grant children the right to sell any part of an estate until after the father dies. And they turn from the expected response of the father, which would have meant absolute disgust, The dad grants the son the right to sell, knowing full well that he is about to shame his entire family in front of a community. Now, in the Jewish world, there is something called the ketzatzah ceremony. When someone violated the code of ethics in a community, they would face the ceremony. It went like this. The village would bring a large jar, fill it with burned nuts and corn, and break it in front of the individual, all while shouting, so-and-so is cut off from the people, so-and-so is cut off from the people, so-and-so is cut off from the people. 
And the village would have nothing to do with him ever again. The lasting impression is shame. So the son leaves, spends all his money, and then I think one of the most misunderstood but important pieces of the whole story happens. We get this verse. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And here is how it gets interpreted. The prodigal son came to himself. He repented. That is the popular modern interpretation. But if we read this passage of Scripture apart from the previous two parables that Jesus tells, we will likely miss the entire point. The first parable Jesus tells is that of a shepherd in search for his lost sheep. The second parable Jesus tells is a woman in search of her lost coin. And then we get our story. Now, by telling the story of the good shepherd, Jesus invokes a very famous psalm, Psalm 23, which also contains a lost sheep and shepherd. And there is a key phrase in there. It says, he restores my soul. And we read that as I was down in the dumps and he lifted my spirits. That's kind of how we modernize it in our English words. The Hebrew here is actually Yashabib Nefshi, which literally means he brings me back or he he causes me to repent. That is what it can literally be translated as. So in summary, it is God doing the work. It is God restoring the soul. It is God bringing me back. It is God finding me. Now, if you remember the audience that Jesus is communicating to when he tells this parable, it's the Pharisees. They know their Hebrew Bible. They know the stories of the Old Testament. And they immediately recognize the phrase, I have sinned against heaven and against you, as an echo of the phrase that Pharaoh used on Moses when he tried to manipulate Moses to lift the plagues. So the here in the story recognizes something. Pharaoh is not interested in repenting. He just wants to bend Moses to his will. And studied scholarship would tell us that this is exactly what's being done in the prodigal story. He aims to soften his dad's heart by offering a solution to the problem. I will work for you to pay back what I've lost. Having failed to get a job in the far country, he is hoping that his father might be a generous employer and take pity on him as a potential servant. There is no real interest in wanting a restored relationship with his dad. There's only concern for the money that he's wasted. And his main emphasis is on the fact that he doesn't have food or money to buy food. And what about the father in all of this? Because this is not some model Middle Eastern patriarch. He has actually done everything the opposite of what a man his day would have done. There is nothing here that would say to the hearers, let's emulate him. And the father knows how his son is going to be received once he comes back. He knows the ceremony he's going to get. He knows his son went off into the distance with big dreams and high hopes, and he is still looking for him. And so Kenneth Bailey remarks, the father hatches a plan to reach the boy before the boy reaches the village. He sees him while he is still far off. 
So dad, wearing an expensive long robe, grabs the bottom of its tails, picks them up, sprints to the boy, clutches his neck, kisses him, and embraces him, something you would never do in that culture. A father would, one, never run. And especially given what the son has done, a father would sit in his chair and he would wait. And it was the son who walked away from the father. And so the father is by no means obligated to go after the son. In fact, he's not even obligated to receive him back once he arrives. But there is something key here. We see the extravagant love of the father before we ever hear a remote confession from the son. The father does not wait for the son to speak, but he embarrasses himself out of a self-giving love that defines who he is. And then you see the son change from what he originally said. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He omits the third phrase, treat me as one of your hired servants. Why was that omitted? Because he does what the invitation for all of us is. He finally accepts being found. He is just like the wayward sheep. He is just like the lost coin. The coin did not suddenly appear while the woman kept going about her day. And the sheep does not happen to find its way back to the shepherd. The woman flips over house and home to find the coin. And the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. In this story, we don't get the picture that Jesus is comparing God to a typical father in the culture. Rather, he is taking the cultural expectation of a father and transforming it all the while painting the picture of Yahweh who is a pursuing relentless dad but then of course there's one more cultural expectation that gets upended the uh, the elder brother who's angry and dismissive of the fact that his brother who wasted his portion of his inheritance and then brought shame upon the entire family is now getting the red carpet treatment as if he's a king. The prodigal did not pay for his sins, and until he does, I'm out. And this interaction with the father is critical. Probably the closest that we are going to get culturally to understanding this is a wedding. A rebellious, foolish child gets married and the older brother at the marriage, instead of celebrating the marriage at hand, takes the opportunity to get into a public shouting match with his dad about how foolish he was in wasting even more money on this pathetic person. And the father's appropriate, acceptable, expected cultural response would be to just ignore Ignore the son who is embarrassing himself and continue on with the party. This is not a boxing match. It is a banquet hall. But he doesn't do that. Once more, he stoops even lower to his oldest son and he does something remarkable. He offers the exact same unexpected love. Instead of continuing with the party, he pulls his older son aside, humiliates himself to go and find one more prodigal. 
hoping that his older son will also accept being found. This is not the story of a remarkable father. This is a portrayal of the transcendent God who we call Father. Now, doesn't context bring the picture from black and white to color? Do you see how you could probably have made sense of the story on first read, but that it carries with it so much more punch when you understand backstory, cultural references, and unique expectations? And this is just one story in one gospel used as one example. The scriptures are full of these. It takes a little more work, consulting a few more resources, reading a bit more widely, asking a few more questions, but you open yourself up to a more startling reality of who God actually is. And then it becomes like it, it, it's, it's the difference between raking leaves and mining for gold. We read the scripture like we are raking leaves, just one swipe across, and then we get our leaves. But mining for gold takes significant work. But when you strike gold, there is literally nothing better. There is so much more to be had in the story, but we got to get the context. And then, of course, contextually, it cannot be overemphasized. The whole of Scripture points to one man. The prophecies in the Old Testament, the the Old Testament people are just archetypes of Jesus, foreshadowing the great prophet, king, liberator, day of atonement, the priest, reading about the construction of the temple in 1 Kings is agonizingly boring if all you're reading about is a temple that was constructed eons ago by a, by a minority people who have no say in our world today. But reading about the construction of the temple in 1 Kings is more thrilling when you realize that God dwelled there and he now no longer dwells there and we are the temples that he's talking about. Reading about the slaughtering of animals for the sins of an ancient people feels like a grotesque and inhumane practice that we would probably call animal abuse on if we saw it today. Especially the burning piece. That, that jars our Western sensibilities. But contextually though, reading about the slaughtering of animals feels like a gracious reprieve when you realize that there was a man who came to be slaughtered like an animal for the sins of the world, including yours. Context. The book points to one man. More accurately, it points to a God who became a man. And the scripture will come to life when you realize that there is a ton of supporting actors, but there is only one main character. We also struggle with reading the scriptures because we lack a historical and global community. While it might be true that Christianity held a monopoly on Western culture, Western culture never held a monopoly on Christianity. And one of the popular refrains today is that Christianity is a white man's religion. And on the surface level, I understand where that sentiment comes from. If you only look at certain strands of American politics and certain strands of Christianity and how potentially some of them have been married to one another, then that would make sense. But what that fails to account for is the fact that Christianity did not start in this part of the world. It did not grow in this part of the world. It did not have its founders and leaders be apart from this part of the world. 
We can acknowledge that imperialism and colonialism have been travesties while also acknowledging that the way of Jesus took off in parts of the world before the West was even on the map. In Acts 8, we meet an Ethiopian who was a court official to the queen of the country. And this man is literally reading one of the scrolls of Isaiah when the Israeli Philip hears him, is prompted by the Spirit to engage him, and joyfully tells him, oh, by the way, what you're reading has come to pass. We also know there were two brothers named Frumentius and Adacius who were sailing to the Axum Empire, which is one of the big empires that ruled Africa during the early 80 centuries. They were captured. They were put in royal palaces as slaves. And through a series of crazy events in 328 AD, Frumentius is consecrated as the first bishop of the Axum Empire by a man named Athanasius, who we'll get to in just a moment. But Frumentius' new role made Axum the second official Christian state in the world. The first one, by the way, was Armenia. This happened 50 years before Rome. 50 years. And to make a long story short, what was known as the Axum Empire and what Frumentius started was the See if I get this through. Uh, the uh, Tiwahedo. I think that's right. I think that's right. The Tiwahe, If you're bold, right? If you're bold, you get it wrong. No one cares, right? But if you if you if you hesitate like I did, then, it, then it's weird. Um, the Tiwahedo Church, okay, which um, is the oldest and most venerated institution in the countries of Ethiopia and Eritrea started from 328 A.D., and it is still standing. 316 A.D. is when those boys were taken in as slaves. The man who deemed Frumentius the bishop was Athanasius of Alexandria, who was born in 293 A.D., and he served as the bishop of Alexandria, which is known as Egypt now. For over 40 years and was one of the leading voices in defending from the scriptures the deity of Christ, which was a doctrine that was under serious scrutiny because of something called the Arian controversy, which held the belief that Jesus was a created being and that he was not one with God. Athanasius' belief of Christ's deity conflicted with this school of thought so much so at the Council of Nicaea convened in 325 A.D., where all these bishops and church leaders came together and cemented what we now know as the Nicene Creed. Lisa Field from the Jude 3 Project made an interesting observation this week. She said, in one of Athanasius' annual letters in 367 AD, he became the first person to name the 27 books of the New Testament that we still use today. And of course, there is no real argument here, but the most influential church father that we still quote today is the 4th century African scholar Augustine of Hippo. The City of God and the Confessions of St. Augustine are some of the most widely read Christian books in the world today. I could go on for the next hour. Here's the point. The idea... That Christianity is a diversity-resistant white Western religion of privilege is utterly irreconcilable with the New Testament, and it's utterly irreconcilable with history. 
If we want to be people who love the scriptures and understand the scriptures, especially in our time and cultural flashpoint, then it would be good for our minds and our hearts and our hands to both read more history and to grapple more widely with the fact that the way of Jesus is a global movement started in the East and has slowly made its way to the West. And when we read the Great Commission, our initial instinct and tendency is to think, we need to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. True. Might I remind us that geographically speaking, we are the ends of the earth relative to Jerusalem. If you are only reading the scripture through your cultural lens, you will be blinded. It is just basic science. It doesn't mean that you can't find truth in the scriptures. Of course you can. It doesn't mean that God won't reveal himself to you over and over again. Of course he will. But it does mean that you will only taste a very small sampling of who God is. God created a most beautiful, diverse world. And if we are to understand the world he created then we must seek to listen and learn beyond the boundaries of those who share our cultural heritage and seek to listen to those who differ in cultural heritage but are imprinted with the image of the invisible God and have committed themselves to the way of Jesus. In Reading While Black, Esau Macaulay says this, But if we all read the biblical text, assuming that God is able to speak a coherent word to us through it, then we can discuss the meanings our varied cultures have gleaned from the scriptures. What I have in mind then is a unified mission in which our varied cultures turn to the text in dialogue with one another to discern the mind of Christ. If you are dependent upon yourself to read and interpret the scriptures without any consultation from those who have gone before us, or those whose background is different than yours, and you are missing out on a couple of things. One is the riches of church history, and there are treasure troves of riches, and the beauty of God's people, and potentially some of your own blind spots. We have such a short memory. We are slaves to what is happening now. I remember a couple years ago, Sarah and I went to Rome, and we were literally sitting, or we were standing around like the ancient ruins of Rome. And we were looking down at a city, a literal city that had been built upon and built upon and built upon and built upon for the last 2,000 years. And all I kept thinking as I walked around the ancient ruins was, the world is so much older than me. How much knowledge do I think I possess because I am a prisoner of the current moment? And perhaps not intentionally, but there is an assumed arrogance that I possess adequate enough knowledge that I don't need the help of others down through the ages. And specifically, when it comes to walking with Jesus and listening to the Spirit and interpreting the Scriptures, this basic phrase changes everything. I need help. The global and historic Christian community is available to us. It's actually more available now than it ever has been in the entirety of church history. And yet we are the most biblically illiterate, historically ignorant generations this country has ever seen. I find that striking, but it doesn't have to be that way. The invitation is to tap into that. And then finally, we struggle with reading the scriptures because we lack reading it in an actual community. There is no such thing as private Christianity. Personal? Yes. Intimate? Yes. But the number one descriptor the New Testament uses to describe Christian is brother 
and sister. This is a family. The church did not start off as an institution where you got a member card. It was a changing of your name. So the idea of soul devotion and allegiance to King Jesus is daunting and terrifying if you are coming from a place that is the opposite of allegiance to Jesus. But what softens the blow is the realization that you are entering into a family. An interesting observation I had this week is that if you turn your Bible from left to right, you will see that after Acts, we do not get any mention of the word disciple. Strange. Potentially very strange. Now, the Bible from left to right is not written chronologically because much of Acts is an account of Paul's missionary journey across parts of Asia Minor. And much of the rest of the New Testament after Acts is Paul's letters to the various churches. So don't think we should throw out the term, nor do I believe the label disciple, which means learner or apprentice, should have any less value in our church. The verb form of disciple actually has multiple uses across New Testament letters, which implies that the concept of learning does not seem to wane whatsoever. But if you look at the trajectory of Jesus' ministry and you look how the story unfolds throughout his life post his ascension, there is a trend that happens. And it's a trend that goes far beyond student-teacher. It seems... That the natural process of discipleship turns people into more than students. It turns them into siblings. This church, the church, is not about content consumption. It's about communal transformation. This is about fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. It's about the faith getting passed down from one generation to the next. That was how the story got passed down from Israel. The oral telling of our ancestors. In Jesus' final words on the cross, he asked for John, his disciple, to care for his mother, Mary. This responsibility would have typically fallen to Jesus' half-brothers, assuming their father was dead. But as the firstborn, Jesus upended expectations and delegated that role to John, saying in no small way that his followers' loyalty and kinship is thicker than blood. The Bible is not a suggestion that the church should act like the family. It is the acknowledgement and counter-revolution that in fact the church is family. Listen to the language of the New Testament. I am sending you my son, Timothy. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Third John. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. When disciples are made and disciples are baptized, when disciples are taught to obey King Jesus, you get a church, you receive a spiritual family. Diverse, unified, unique, sometimes quirky. All the time quirky, but a family. Individualistic Christianity was unthinkable then. Because you are not made for lone ranger discipleship. You don't get formed into the image of Jesus apart from the church. Because you don't get formed into the image of Jesus apart from other people. To read the Bible and interpret the Bible and live out the story outside of this context or anything like this context is impossible. You will either become embittered toward other believers, prideful toward other believers, or burned out.
because none of us can survive on an island. If you want to know how people in general are transformed into the image of Jesus, it typically requires two things, things you have control over and things you have no control over. Things like you have no control over are suffering and time. And things you have control over are community. Now, you don't have control over other people. That's manipulation. And you don't necessarily pick who is in the family of God. That's idolatry. I will make the church into my image and my likeness. But you do choose what you give your time, effort, and emotional energy to. And no one changes into the image of Jesus apart from other people. Other people will sharpen your mind. I cannot tell you the amount of times I've had dialogue over scripture and it's been very obvious. Oh my goodness. If it wasn't for this other person, I would never have seen that. I would have never seen that. (laughs) To understand the heart of God, we have to listen to the people of God. And other people will soften your heart. Reading the scriptures in community opens you up to two main things. Confrontation and encouragement. The two things we need the most are for the false self in us to die and for the true self in us to come alive. And that only happens when you're with other people and dwelt by the same God who are both brave enough and kind enough to reflect back to you the type of person you want to be. Who is Christ in you, the hope of glory? If I could summarize what I desire for our church as it relates to how we relate to one another, it would be this. I want us to be a church that can look one another in the eye and mirror back to people who they are in Jesus and who they want to be because of Jesus. These scriptures give us common ground to do that. I need people to say to me, I see this in you. Praise God. So much encouragement in that simple acknowledgement. And I need people to say to me, I see this in you, and I love you enough to call you to something more. So unbelievably helpful. No one likes it at first, but we all desperately want it. It's the moment where the flesh and the spirit meet, and it's the moment where we're like, Ugh! don't love that. That is the moment that God is doing something. Do not resist. Do not. We need each other. And by God's grace, we have been given each other. You are a gift to one another. So let us lean in and embrace the community of faith as we open the Bible together and seek to live out the family values. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. You have called us brothers and sisters. And we cannot wrap our heads around that. And we need your Spirit to help illuminate in us what you are doing through the Bible. The difficult parts, the hard parts, the tenuous parts, the frustrating parts help us. We need you. We need you to speak through other people in this room.
help us learn to live into the story as revealed in the scriptures. What are you calling us to? Help us be brave enough and kind enough to reflect back to people who they are and who they desire to be because of Jesus. Give us courage, conviction, and fill us with grace. And it is in your precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org. 